Welcome to Podcasts on Demand, a continuing medical education activity. This activity includes the most recent and current clinical data presented by leading experts. If you are seeking continuing education credit, please review the disclosures and the requirements for a successful completion of the activity prior to listening to the podcast. A link is found in the podcast description that can direct you to this information. Welcome to episode three of four of Expert Insights on ITP, how do emerging treatment options have the potential to transform patient outcomes? I'm Dr. James Bussell, and I'm joined by Dr. Sydney Nunez, who is widely known in the field of ITP and has been the leading uh, person behind the last two versions of the ASH ITP guidelines. This series provides our expert discussion on the diagnosis and treatment of ITP, along with practical considerations for how personalized treatment strategies and the integration of patient-reported outcomes and shared decision-making can impact patient outcomes. I would recommend that you download the accompanying slide to follow Dr. Nooner's discussion of this case this podcast. So now we're going to come up to a couple of cases in which some of these will be illustrated. And Cindy, take it away with the first case. Sure. Thank you, Jim. So uh, we're going to do an interactive case. Um, So let me just get my... We're going to start with our case study. Okay. So we're going to start with our first case. So this is a 27-year-old Nilpars female who is presenting with epistaxis, petechiae bruising, and some heavy menstrual bleeding. And at the time of presentation, her platelet count is 5,000. She was started on a four-day course of dexamethasone, but had no response. And so therefore, she was added in some IVIG, and her platelet count did respond to that. She had cessation of her bleeding symptoms as, as well, but then her platelet count fell back down again. She was then treated with a course of rituximab, which was chosen because of the likelihood of cure in women of childbearing age. But um, she had, and at that time, she really wasn't having a whole lot of uh, bruising symptoms. And with rituximab, her platelet count did increase to 163,000. And she was able to say, you know, the ITP really at this time is not interfering with my daily activities. So four months later, she does present again with a few small bruises and recurrent heavy menses again over the last several weeks, and her platelet count is now back down to 31,000. She returns two months later, and previously she was known to be that steroid-resistant patient. She did respond to IVIG, and she did have a kind of short-lived complete remission on, uh, on rituximab. But now she presents again with bruising and a platelet count of 15,000. So we go back over and we kind of have to, at this point in a patient like this, really reassess um, where we are with her ITP. Is there additional studies that we need to do? What else do we need to be looking for? Um, Perhaps there's a reason that she's now had a drop in platelet count following rituximab. So an important time point to always come back to that initial evaluation of ITP. So here is a nice diagnostic algorithm that I like that just talks through different pathways of thrombocytopenia and where we might end up. And again, for us, um, we're in the category of isolated thrombocytopenia, which does lead us to ITP. And in this patient, that remains our diagnosis. So we are now going to sit down with our patient and have to figure out what to do next, right? And we 
we kind of talk to her and begin to get her story as um, Dr. Bussell was telling you, you know, this is about learning the patient story and learning from them. And she says to you, you know, I really didn't like how I felt on steroids. I was unable to sleep. I felt depressed. Rituximab also just really didn't make me feel good on my infusion days. And sometimes I just had to take some time off work to recover. I don't want to be immunosuppressed again. And I really don't like getting, getting shots. And I would just prefer a medication that doesn't have a lot of side effects and allows me to feel my best and to continue working. And I do think it's always important to that point. I I do think it really is always important to check back in with your patients and make sure that, that the decision that we made two months ago still remains the right treatment and the right decision, right? It's very easy to just start a therapy and let time go by and we forget to check back in. Um, so this is just a slide highlighting these different therapies, which we've talked about, the different TPOs, um, rituximab as an option, splenectomy, and then we introduced fostamatinib um, as well. And this is sort of the category we were in with our patient. She had already received some first-line therapy and was now looking for a second-line option. So this is this is really outlining kind of the basic conundrum that we've been talking about this whole time that was actually experienced when we tried to make prescriptive guidelines for second-line therapy in adults with ITP. And what we realized is that it's very, very difficult um, to really put these things side by side. We lack randomized controlled trials. They're so vastly different, right? Comparing splenectomy to four courses of rituximab to medications that are ongoing and daily, um, it's very challenging. And so we ended up in a place where we really felt the most important thing was to assess different characteristics of the patient in terms of how long they've had ITP, maybe what they've responded to in the past, but whether or not they've had chronic ITP, in which case we might be more likely to consider splenectomy, or if it's earlier on in the course. And then what are those values and preferences? And also, is there anything else that might indicate which therapy is best for a particular patient? And this is where we really came down to more of a values and preference-based algorithm, if you may, for second-line therapy as opposed to very, very firm guidelines um, with very strong recommendations. Because treatment should always be tailored to the patient, and many factors may contribute to patient decisions. And these are all the things that um, we've already talked about in terms of patient characteristics and values that may impact their decision for treatment. So when we think about second-line therapies, um, we know that two-thirds of adult patients will develop persistent ITP despite our first-line treatments. We lack randomized controlled trials to put these side-by-side. It really depends on how well a treatment's efficacy profile and potential side effects really align with our patient's needs, priorities, values, and preferences. And uncertainties demand unbiased information dissemination by patients and clinicians to really empower them. And the American Society of Hematology clinical guidelines would conditionally recommend a TPO rather than rituximab, which is recommended over splenectomy. But in any event, our patient had rituximab already without a long-lasting response. So TPORA aligned with her values and preferences and actually seemed like a very reasonable option for both the patient and her treating physician. So what are the benefits, again, of this of shared decision-making? So with this patient, we engaged in shared decision-making because we wanted to understand her journey with ITP. We wanted to be able to recognize that a decision needs to be made based on the information we have, but then we need to make sure the patient understands pros and cons of those options. They have the information and tools that they need. 
and they're better prepared to talk to their healthcare providers when they come to the visit and collaborate. This really is a collaboration when there's really no one right specific treatment. And, you know, I think in the end, this makes patients more likely to be adherent to their medications, to feel empowered, um, and to make the right decisions for them. So in conclusion, how uh, were the patient's preferences acknowledged? Well, again, we know that we don't have biomarkers or reliable evidence to choose a particular therapy. And so in her case, we sat down and we understood that we expressed those uncertainties and we tailored our decision to her based on the information that we had. And our patient really was pretty clear in what she did and did not want. And we were able to listen to that and incorporate that into our decision. And when we looked at our TPOs that were available, we really had um, avithrombopag and L-thrombopag as oral options. And we chose avithrombopag because it just has a slightly different um, side effect profile than the L-thrombopag, and that seemed to appeal to our patient. She did not want injections, so we did not do uh, ramiplastin, and she had already had rituximab and um, did not appreciate the way that therapy made her feel. These would all be suitable options, though, as we've talked about, and we, we engaged in a conversation about each of them from the beginning with her. So again, just highlighting how we arrived at our particular decision with her, and she wanted something that would work well with minimal side effects. We took fostamatinib off. Um, fostamatinib does have some degree of side effects, although it is an oral medication. And when we talked her through that, she again really favored something that was going to have the lowest uh, possible side effect profile, um, but with, uh, you know, acceptable efficacy as well. And she, in the end, chose the avithrombopag um, because of all the lack of uh, dietary requirements as well as, again, we talked about the side effects with the liver. And it just seemed like an easier medication for her to be able to keep up with it and fit better with her lifestyle. And she does realize um, that there's less experience with avithrombopag, but she's really not that concerned about thrombosis. Um, and there may be this increased risk with avithrombopag, although she recognizes it's not very clear. And she's actually okay with that, again, because the rest of it fits what she uh, desires. So I'll stop there. Um, thank you for joining me on that patient journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Expert Insights on ITP, How Do Emerging Treatment Options Have the Potential to Transform Patient Outcomes podcast series? Please join us for the final episode in this series. We hope you found this podcast useful and educational. To receive continuing education credit and to download your printable certificate, please go to the activity page at practice.cme.com to complete the post-test and evaluation to receive continuing education credit.